Hello, this is episode 15 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. I have just one housekeeping note to share before getting into the story for this episode. When I started this podcast, I intended to release new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. However, I've found that those dates often fall on weekends or times when it's difficult for me to find time to work on the podcast. So after some consideration, I've decided that henceforth, I'll release new episodes on the first and third Wednesday of each month, or every other Wednesday. In the span of 10 days, just before the 2018 midterm elections, Americans saw four terrifying new hate crimes. The men who carried them out harbored grievances both personal and political, further aggravated by mental illness or personality disorder. They may have been considered socially isolated loners, but they congregated and commiserated with fellow haters in online echo chambers. They faced limited economic prospects and reached a breaking point, an incident that finally pushed them into violence. A 2018 Secret Service analysis of mass attacks in public spaces found that more than half of the 27 attacks were motivated by grievances like domestic situations or workplace disputes. Nearly all of the shooters experienced at least one significant stressor, like financial insecurity in the past five years. While there's no single profile that fits these men, they are mostly young and middle-aged white men. According to an FBI study, 63% of mass shooters between 2000 and 2013 were white and primarily young or middle-aged. They subscribe to what some scholars have defined as male grievance culture, which University of Washington criminal justice professor Eric Madfist pinpointed as the intersection of white entitlement, middle-class instability, and heterosexual masculinity. Mass murderers tend to be people who have failed throughout their lives in myriad ways, people who were bullied or picked on in school, people who didn't get to date as many people as they wanted or the people they wanted to, Madfus explained in a 2009 paper co-authored with Jack Levin. It is true that they are often people who haven't performed their masculinity in ways that we traditionally value. It's an alternative route to achieve your masculinity by committing a mass act of violence. Everyone experiences stressors and trauma but not everyone handles it by committing mass violence. Matfis says that belonging to a privileged group can affect that reaction. Whether you're talking about male entitlement or white entitlement or Christian entitlement, Matfis said, if you don't get the American dream, that seems like a more profound or unexpected loss than for other communities that have lived with entrenched poverty or things like that. The men who carried out these four acts of violence over 10 days shared several stressors and other factors in common. All of them seemed to collect grievances like philatelists collect stamps. 
each seems to have been on a spectrum somewhere between personality disorder and psychosis. Each was isolated from others to some degree, but immersed themselves in social media echo chambers that encouraged their extremism and nurtured their grievances and resentments. Each seemed to experience a sort of economic malaise. The accused hate criminals didn't seem to be going places, observes Christine Sarteshi, author of a reference work on U.S. mass murderers. Their life, she said, didn't turn out in the way they planned it. Each experienced an event that served as a point at which their paths took a decisive turn, ultimately leading to their actions. And finally, a specific event served as a catalyst that led them to act on their anger and hatred. On October 24th, 51-year-old Gregory Bush tried and failed to break into a black church outside of Louisville, Kentucky. He went to a nearby Kroger and killed two black shoppers, telling a bystander that whites don't shoot whites. Two days later, a 57-year-old Florida man and Trump supporter named Cesar Sayoc was accused of mailing pipe bombs to political critics of Donald Trump. The following day, 46-year-old Robert Bowers shot and killed 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue while shouting, All Jews Must Die. We covered the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Episode 8 of this podcast. Finally, on November 2nd, 40-year-old misogynist Scott Byerly shot and killed two women at a hot yoga class in Tallahassee, Florida, before turning the gun on himself. Raised in Vestal, New York, Byerly was one of three boys raised in a middle-class family. On the surface, he seemed to be a typical boy. He was a Boy Scout and an acolyte in his family's Methodist church. He also worked as a paper boy and was elected vice president of the Vestal High School class of 1997. But there was another side to young Scott Byerly. He openly admired Hitler and the Aryan nations. His class campaign slogan against a female opponent was, Vote Byerly because we don't need no woman. His violent writings concerned his family so much that his parents slept with their bedroom door locked when he was in the house. In 2002, his brother and sister-in-law considered contacting the FBI out of suspicion that he might be the D.C. sniper. Byerly was living near the nation's capital at that time. Byerly was an avowed hater of women from a young age. He fantasized about raping and killing them in the violent collection of lyrics, novels, and poetry he began writing as a teenager. In the late 1990s, as a high school student, Byerly wrote a 70,000-word novel titled Rejected Youth, a revenge fantasy about a middle school boy nursing a hatred of the girls he believed shunned and rejected him. The protagonist, Scott Bradley, is enraged by their scorn as he ridicules their boyfriends, critiques their looks, and laments, the hot ones all detest me and I haven't a clue why. He murders them one by one, even as he desires them. In the final scene, he slashes the throat of the clique's ringleader just before jumping off a roof as police officers closed in. According to one person who knew Byerly at the time, the characters were their actual classmates, with their names slightly changed. This is basically his school journal, said a man who spoke on the condition of anonymity. He traced his fury at women to the girls who both aroused and frustrated him in eighth grade, writing, just beneath their blushing lashes and their innocent smiles, 
lies the most rancid and putrid, sickening essences. After graduating from high school, Byerly moved out west, telling friends he was going to try to make it as a screenwriter. But he soon returned to New York, eventually graduating from Binghamton University. Along the way, he managed to get himself banned from a local bar for groping women and fired from a call center job for harassing a female co-worker. Around this time, Byerly discovered punk rock and reveled in the utter chaos of the music. He tried his hand at songwriting, using the incident with his co-worker as the basis for one of his first songs, Stalker. He channeled his anger at women into revenge scenarios, including kidnapping, torture, cannibalism, and mass shooting in songs like Locked in My Basement, Freshly Fried Up Girl, and I Will Not Touch You, My Bullets Will. Byerly's misogyny connects him to other men who've carried out similar attacks. Just a few months before he launched his attack, the Southern Poverty Law Center added a new category to its tracking list of hate movements, male supremacy. It encompasses a variety of violent acts by men who view women as genetically inferior, inherently treacherous, or unwilling to provide them with the sex and submission to which they feel entitled. Such condemnation of women is as old as the Greek myth that blamed Pandora for releasing evil into the world. But today, it is fueled by exchanges between aggrieved men in online chat rooms and forums, driving some men to online harassment of women and even a few to violence. The FBI began tracking hate crimes against women in 2013. Though the agency's statistics have always suffered from inconsistencies in hate crime reporting from thousands of police departments across the country. In 2018, the FBI recorded 33 attacks against women based on their gender. However, many incidents go unreported by police or by women themselves. Researchers expect more attacks in the future, stoked by cross pollination of aggrieved men and online hate movements. What's different today is the online space itself. Heidi Byrick of the Southern Poverty Law Center said, Back in the day, an ad on how to meet girls in the back of a magazine didn't open a door into the dark web. In a 2018 report, the Anti-Defamation League dubbed it the Manosphere and they divided it into three overlapping groups. Men's rights activists who have channeled legitimate advocacy for equal treatment in divorce and custody disputes into a toxic male rage. Pickup artists who have perverted those back-of-the-magazine schemes into a cult of predatory sexual entitlement and incels men who blame all women for their involuntary celibacy. Byerly openly identified with this last group, incels. The term itself is a portmanteau of the phrase involuntarily celibate. Ironically, the first online community to use the term was founded by an anonymous young Canadian woman known only by her first name, Alana. In 1993, she created a website called Alana's Involuntary Celibacy Project, which was used by people of all genders to discuss their thoughts and experiences. In 1997, she started a mailing list using the abbreviation INVCEL, later shortened to INCEL. Alana later discovered that she was bisexual and grew more comfortable with her sexuality. She gave the website to a stranger. In 2014, when she read about how parts of the incel culture glorified Elliot Roger, the perpetrator of the Isla Vista massacre, she wrote, 
like a scientist who invented something that ended up being a weapon of war, I can't uninvent this word, nor restrict it to the nicer people who need it. Alana expressed regret over the change in usage from her original intent to create an inclusive community for men and women who were sexually deprived due to social awkwardness, marginalization, or mental illness. She has since launched Love Not Anger, a project to research how lonely people might find respect, love, instead of being stuck in anger. Stuck in anger is precisely where many who identify as incels remain. The incels subreddit on the website Reddit was a particularly active incel community. However, Reddit announced a new policy on October 25th, 2017 that banned content that encourages, glorifies, incites, or calls for violence or physical harm against an individual or group of people. Under the new policy, the site banned the incels subreddit on November 7, 2017. At the time, the community had around 40,000 members. Incels are members of an online community who identify themselves as being unable to find romantic or sexual partners despite wanting one. According to the incel subreddit, an incel is at least 21 years of age and has gone six months without a romantic or sexual partner not of their own volition. While it may seem that definition would fit people of any gender, those who identify as such are nearly all white heterosexual men who believe that they have an inherent right to sex and that they are being oppressed by being denied sex. There are several potential contributing factors to the rise of incel communities online. Differences in how men and women are socialized are one likely factor. Women are socialized from an early age to blame themselves if they feel undesirable. They learn to believe that they will be unacceptable unless they invest time, money, and effort in making themselves attractive to men. Men, on the other hand, are more likely to blame women if they feel undesirable. Cultural changes have enabled women to gain economic and cultural power that allows them to be selective about their partners. The sexual revolution encouraged women to seek liberation. The self-esteem movement taught them that they were valuable beyond what conventional ideas about gender might dictate. Feminism gave them confidence in these convictions and the company of other women who shared them. As a result, most American women now grow up understanding that they can and should choose who they want and don't want as romantic or sexual partners. Such cultural changes come into direct conflict with hegemonic masculinity, which dictates that men are expected to have sex. A straight white man who does not have sex is considered deviant. Deborah Tolman, a professor of psychology at the City University of New York, explained, masculinity is a psychological process. It's the messages that we all get about how boys are supposed to be and not be. And the things they're supposed to be are things that are usually associated with power. Joey, a self-identified incel, Interviewed by Vice News reporter Ella Reeve, echoing Tolman's words, explained the frustration with women as a part of a broader social anxiety based in social norms about masculinity. Women represent our way to enter the social hierarchy. Many of us have no peers outside of online, he said. With women surging ahead of men in areas like education, and competing with them economically, Joey and his online incel compatriots experience a new uncertainty about their place in the world, leading to anxiety and depression. 
Ironically, incels like Joey, feeling marginalized for being celibate, blame women's liberation for their emasculation, not the powers that be, namely the patriarchy. They see feminism as a negative because women, having more options socially and economically, are choosing not to have sex with them. Access to women is, in their view, a privilege they are due as men. And women, empowered by social and cultural changes, are denying them that privilege because they have more options. Aggrieved entitlement, in which a usually privileged group is partially denied their expected privileges, is the term for this phenomenon. Involuntarily celibate men are an example of aggrieved entitlement, as are white supremacists who believe that white Americans should take their country back. Some white Americans also see themselves as losing their place and privilege due to shifting demographics and cultural changes reflected in areas like politics and entertainment. The same men who identify as incels also subscribe to notions of white supremacy. Not surprising, considering that both movements revolve around topsy-turvy ideologies that see those with the most power in society as the real victims of oppression. If you can convince yourself that men are the real victims of sexism, it's a relatively short trip to persuade yourself that whites are the real victims of racism. The misogyny of incels makes them an ideal target audience for contemporary white supremacists. The ADL explained in its report, When Women Are the Enemy, the intersection of misogyny and white supremacy, a deep-seated loathing of women acts as a connective tissue between many white supremacists. Whereas old guard white supremacists revered women as mothers of the white race, younger bigots see them as just one more group responsible for eroding their status as white men. They flip the script from past white supremacist males' guardianship of white female sexuality that resulted in lynchings and deaths of young black men like Emmett Till. Even if you become the ultimate alpha male, some stupid bitch will still ruin your life, declared Andrew Anglin on the neo-Nazi website he founded, The Daily Stormer. Incels are full of rage, and it is trivial to turn these guys into kikators, explained one of Anglin's sidekicks, Andrew Arenheimer, known online as Weave in a Daily Stormer post. Few people have ever personally had their lives ruined or harmed by a Jew in a direct, personally observable sense, but every single breathing man has had it effed up by multiple selfish, scheming hookers, likely starting with their own mothers. Ideally, incels would have unlimited access to women's bodies without consequences or even input from women themselves. They refuse to see women as individuals with their own desires or as having any worth outside of their sexual availability to men. The idea that their misogyny might be the real root of their failures with women doesn't appear to occur to them. Incels believe that they cannot have sexual or romantic relationships because they are irredeemably ugly or too socially awkward to be desirable to women. They think that no amount of self-improvement, mentally or physically, is likely to improve their chances. They gather and commiserate with each other in online communities like the chat room into which Joey takes Vice News reporter L. Reeve. Conversations are characterized by resentment, misanthropy, misogyny, self-loathing, racism, and a sense of entitlement to sex. Some encourage suicide among incels, violence against sexually active women and more sexually successful men, and harassment of women. Like many subcultures, incels have a coded language, a shorthand jargon they use to communicate with others in their group.
they call women femoids and divide them into distinct groups. Stacies are sexually attractive, sexually active women, and Beckys are less attractive, sexually active women. Incels usually call sexually active men chads. They are at the top of the incel hierarchy as the most attractive men. According to incels, chads make up about 20% of the male population, but 80% of women are only interested in the top 20% of men, those men who fall somewhere toward the middle of the attractiveness hierarchy are called betas, cucks, or normies. The bottom 20% of women will deign to have sex with them. Incels place themselves at the bottom of the hierarchy, so undesirable that they have no chance of convincing women to have sex with them. By the way, chads can be further divided or subdivided into ethnic groups. A Tyrone is a black chad. A Chang is an East Asian chad. A Chad Preet is a South Asian chad. And a Chatham is an Arab chad. Many incels may embrace concepts like biological determinism and evolutionary psychology. They embrace the 80-20 theory mentioned above, which holds that 80% of women desire the top 20% of men, of the most attractive men. Among non-whites, the JBW theory is also popular. JBW stands for Just Be White, which suggests that whites face fewer obstacles in finding romantic or sexual partners. Incels believe that People seeking sexual or romantic partners take part in a cruel Darwinian selection process in which N-cells are considered genetically unfit and women hold an advantage for reasons ranging from feminism to the use of makeup. N-cells are likely to blame their lack of sexual or romantic success on factors such as shyness, sex-segregated work environments, negative body image, penis size, or physical appearance. They believe the only thing more important than looks in improving men's chances of sexual success is wealth. Some in incel communities support what they call, quote, forced sexual redistribution. The idea is that the government would require women to engage in certain sexual relationships. Some incels call it sexual Marxism or state-sanctioned rape. Scott Byerly identified with the incel community and likened himself to incel killer Elliot Roger in the videos he posted on his YouTube account. Byerly posted to YouTube under the name Scott Carnifex, the latter meaning executioner in Latin. Byerly's channel only had three subscribers, and his 17 videos had a handful of views before YouTube removed his account. BuzzFeed was first to report on the videos. In his video entitled The Plight of the Adolescent Male, Byerly called beautiful women the epitome of arrogance and criticized societal expectations of adolescent males whom he said are programmed to believe that sexual conquest is inherently tied to masculinity. I'd like to send a message now to the adolescent males that are in the position, the situation, the disposition of Elliot Rogers of not getting any, no love, no nothing, he said in the video, referencing the 22-year-old Isla Vista murderer who expressed frustration at being a virgin and being reject rejected by attractive women. This endless wasteland that breeds this longing and frustration, that was me, certainly, as an adolescent. In a 2014 video entitled The Rebirth of My Misogyny, Byerly complained about women who gave out their phone numbers but didn't return calls or disclosed that they already had boyfriends. He traced his hatred of women back to his 8th grade home economics class and even named some of the girls in the class.
Those who engage in treachery will ultimately be the victims of it, Byerly said. The target of their collective treachery can be anyone. How do you respond when they attempt to tear somebody down? Well, that's where it began, until I figured out how to address it. In other videos, Byerly ranted against African Americans and interracial relationships. In one video titled, Dreadlocks Are the Black Man's Mullet, he cataloged six reasons he hated African Americans and what he called their thuggery, while repeatedly using racial slurs. He complained that dreadlocks were only considered vogue among the, quote, gutter of our society, and said the hairstyle made it difficult for him to continue to be an NFL fan. In another video titled The Dangers of Diversity, he lamented what he saw as the rise of foreigners in the U.S. and praised countries that maintained one ethnic character. He also railed against mongrelization and interracial dating and called black women ugly and disgusting. In Misogynism, Byerly spoke of a woman who kept canceling and rescheduling dates, saying he could have ripped her head off. He spoke angrily about the idea that women could press charges for his, quote, aggressive pursuit of them, which he deemed a typical male characteristic and asked, can I press charges for being evasive? Byerly also talked about women who turned down his invitation to a concert, as though he was entitled to their romantic attention. I'm trying to live my life here. You're not helping, he said. Byerly also kept a SoundCloud account since removed, where he posted songs like Bring Your Fatwa and I Don't F With Fatties and Who Let The Fags Out. In a song titled Nobody's Type, he lamented that women didn't find him attractive. I'm no athletic shark. I'm not a physical specimen. I don't win the trophies and medals. Nobody stands in awe of me, he sang. In American Wigger, he sang that he would blow off the head of a woman he referred to using the C-word. The song, Locked in My Basement, featured an alarming tale of Byerly holding a woman prisoner in his basement using chains so he could rape her. A timeline of Byerly's actions shows how his anger and resentment intensified over time and how he planned his violence. From 2005 to 2007, Byerly taught English and social studies at Meade High School in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Towards the end of his first year of teaching, police investigated him for making a female student uncomfortable by touching her arm, suggesting that she wear low-cut shirts, and asking if she would ever pose for Playboy. Police records show the case was suspended, and Byerly taught for another year before resigning. Byerly resigned from his teaching job at the end of the 2006-2007 school year. He joined the United States Army on January 30, 2008. On March 6, 2009, Byerly purchased a 40 caliber Glock handgun from Uncle Sam's Pawn and Gun in Lawton, Oklahoma. He returned on March 9, 2009, and bought a 9mm Glock handgun. Byerly served in Germany, completed officer school, and became a second lieutenant. However, on July 8, 2010, he was dishonorably discharged for unacceptable conduct. Army documents revealed that Byerly faced investigation for inappropriate contact with female soldiers. In August 2011, Byerly moved to Tallahassee, Florida, and enrolled at Florida State University. There, he wrote of making a pilgrimage of sorts to the boarding house where serial killer Ted Bundy had lived during his time in Tallahassee. He also visited Sorority Row, 
where Bundy killed two members of the Chi Omega sorority in 1978. Christians have their Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem, he wrote, and I have mine. Julian Brown, who roomed with Byerly in Tallahassee for a year, starting in the fall of 2011, said that Byerly made inappropriate comments to women who visited their apartment. He was very weird and made everyone uncomfortable. It worried me at the time, but there wasn't enough evidence, and I would have been wasting the police's time if I'd made any kind of report, Brown said. I had nothing. Florida State University police were called to the Suwanee Room on December 7, 2012, following a report of a man inappropriately touching female patrons. 18-year-old freshman Courtney Conan was in the dining hall when she felt a hand on her rear end. She whirled around to face Byerly, who claimed he hadn't touched her on purpose. A few minutes later, she saw him grope another woman and then a third. All three women wore yoga pants. Victim one stated she was at the soda fountain when she felt someone grab her buttocks, the police report says. She thought it may have been her boyfriend at first, and when she turned around, she identified the male as Byerly. Victim number two stated she saw Byerly grab victim number three and wanted to make sure she saw what she saw. Victim number two stated the same person had grabbed her on the buttocks on three separate occasions over the last month. Police arrested Byerly on battery charges. Conan declined to press charges, but Byerly was banned from the dining hall. Byerly graduated from Florida State University in May 2013. His LinkedIn profile described him as a military professional from Tallahassee and listed two master's degrees from FSU in public administration and urban planning. He also sold the 40 caliber Glock handgun at Diamonds and Gold Pawn Shop in Tallahassee. On July 2, 2014, Florida State University police arrested Byerly for trespassing. He had been seen following an FSU volleyball coach near the campus gym and was banned from campus. A month later, police found him at a campus restaurant and arrested him. In April 2015, Lee County Public Schools hired Byerly as a substitute teacher. Around this time, he tried doing stand-up at a local comedy club until bookers told him his anti-Semitic humor was not wanted. He also tried unsuccessfully to spark a social life through a meetup group for 20-somethings and 30-somethings. We called him Nazi Scott, said a woman who belonged to the group. He'd walk up and just start talking about weapons and killing people in the military and how Hitler was right to clear the human race of gays and Jews and blacks. By 2016, Byerly seemed preoccupied with thoughts about Tallahassee and yoga. On January 23, 2016, he performed his first internet search combining yoga and provocative content. On March 18, 2016, Leon County Public Schools fired Byerly for searching for pornographic content online when he was teaching. On May 19, 2016, he performed his first search for Tallahassee Hot Yoga. Byerly moved to Deltona, Florida in September 2016. By August 2017, Volusia County Public Schools hired him as a substitute teacher. From May to June 2018, Byerly performed internet searches for cheerleading camps, including one in Panama City. 
In May 2018, a parent complained about Byerly to the school district. She said that Byerly was staring at the students in a strange way and shouldn't be teaching kids. While working as a substitute at Galaxy Middle School in Volusia, Byerly reportedly asked a female student if she was ticklish and touched her below the bra line on her stomach. Brought to the administrative office, Byerly attempted to leave the school before he could make a statement. A sheriff's deputy caught him and brought him back for questioning. The Volusia County School District terminated Byerly on June 1, 2018. The county permanently banned him from teaching, citing unprofessional conduct. This final termination seems to have been the catalyst that moved Byerly from violent fantasies to violent action. He blamed women themselves rather than his treatment of women for his lack of sexual and romantic success. He likely blamed them for his lack of economic success instead of his own inappropriate behavior. Despite a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees, Byerly couldn't even hold a job as a substitute teacher, primarily because he couldn't keep his hands to himself. At this point, Byerly began planning to take violent action to avenge himself upon women whom he blamed for all his failures. On July 14, 2018, he performed his last known internet search, combining the term yoga and provocative content. Nine days later, Byerly purchased a 9mm Glock handgun from Central Florida Pawn in Orange City, Florida. One week later, he bought 30 minutes of range time at the Tallahassee Indoor Shooting Range. Byerly's phone records showed that he traveled to Panama City Beach after leaving the Tallahassee Indoor Shooting Range. He had previously searched the internet for cheerleading camps in the area, but there were no reports of any other activity by him during his time in Panama City. On August 3, 2018, Byerly conducted an internet search for a map to Hot Yoga Tallahassee. He also sent a childhood friend a link to his website featuring his violent lyrics about stalking and murdering women. On August 5th, that friend's wife called the Federal Bureau of Investigation to tip them off about the website but the agency deemed the tip non-actionable. Phone records indicated that Byerly placed a call to Hot Yoga of Tallahassee, but the staff had no specific recollection of the call. One month before the shooting, Byerly began to put his plan into action. On October 2nd, he viewed Tallahassee Hot Yoga's schedule on their website. On October 10th, Hurricane Michael made landfall between Mexico Beach and Panama City, Florida. Byerly reviewed a news story about electrical power restoration after the hurricane on October 12th. Two days later, he booked a room at Tallahassee Suburban Extended Stay. Byerly began planning his murderous return to the city where police had arrested him for inappropriate contact with women, where his attempts at comedy and socializing had crashed and burned, and where he was fired from his last substitute teaching job. On October 30th, he sold the 9mm Glock handgun he'd purchased in March 2009 to Central Florida Pawn in Orange City, Florida. On October 31st, Byerly bought hearing protection and a yoga mat at an Orange City Walmart at around 3 p.m. At approximately 7.22 p.m., he bought more hearing protection at the Live Oak, Florida Walmart. Byerly then drove 250 miles to Tallahassee. He arrived at Tallahassee Suburban Extended Stay at approximately 8.52 p.m. 
On November 1st, he left Tallahassee Suburban extended stay at 9.13 p.m. and returned at 9.50 p.m. Byerly left Tallahassee Suburban extended stay at 4.35 p.m. Security footage showed him wearing a fanny pack and carrying a black bag. At 5.17 p.m., he walked into Hot Yoga Tallahassee's Thomasville Road location. He paid to attend a late afternoon class and paced outside until the class started. When he entered the classroom at 5.35, still in his street shoes and carrying a shrink-wrapped yoga mat, Byerly carried 100 rounds and the intention to do a great deal of harm. The yoga class had already started. Students were in the child pose, on their knees with noses to the floor and arms outstretched. The instructor told Byerly to store his belongings in a cubby outside of the hot room. But I have a question, he said as he fumbled in his backpack. He took out a pair of earmuffs, hearing protectors, and put them on. Then he took the Glock 9mm handgun out of his black bag and held it up almost as if to show it off. What are you doing? the instructor asked. Byerly then shot two victims from behind. He continued to fire as panic erupted in the class. Joshua Quick, a second-year FSU law student, was attending the class with his girlfriend. Quick, 33, had moved to Tallahassee a couple of years earlier to attend law school. He grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, where he attended the Self-Realization Fellowship, a temple founded by an Indian guru where followers do Kriya Yoga. He also spent 10 years as a Kung Fu student and assistant instructor. When the shooting started, Quick's girlfriend ducked behind him. He tried to kick through a nearby window, but it was too solid to break. The only other way out was the door on the other side of the studio. Quick's field of vision narrowed to the shooter. I saw no blood. I saw no bodies, he said. I just saw him, and I just wanted to hit him. Quick grabbed the first thing he saw, a vacuum cleaner, and used it to hit Byerly, who retaliated by pistol-whipping him. Quick fell to the ground. Some of the students who could seized the chance to escape during the struggle. Quick got to his feet, grabbed a broom, and struck Byerly in the head. The two men stared at each other. There was a click, and then Byerly looked down and began fumbling with his gun. I thought it was just a jammed bullet, Quick said. I thought he would just cock it back and get it cleared and then shoot me. But the gun had malfunctioned. With Byerly distracted, Quick and the other students escaped and made it downstairs, taking shelter in the kitchen of a nearby bar. One victim remained behind, pretending to be dead. She heard Byerly make a single statement after the shooting stopped. She heard a single shot. She looked up to see Byerly laying atop a victim's body, having fired one final shot into his head. She fled the studio as first responders arrived. Byerly killed two women and wounded four others, all of whom survived their injuries. Dr. Nancy Van Vessem, 61, was a physician, a faculty member at FSU College of Medicine, and the chief medical director for Capital Health Plan, a network of about 450 medical professionals. Dr. Van Vessem, was responsible for coordinating the third and fourth year clerkship rotations in internal medicine at FSU's Tallahassee campus. She also researched providing care to people with multiple chronic diseases. 
a local hospice organization remembered her as a champion for end-of-life care. Capital Health Plan issued this statement following Dr. Vesson's death. As CHP's longtime chief medical director, Nancy has been a guiding, visionary force in our daily work to serve the wellness and health care needs of thousands of families in this community. Her dedication, caring, leadership, humanity, and experience made her one of the most respected, inspiring, and accomplished medical professionals in the state and country. Our hearts are filled with sorrow and prayers for her family. We have all been so blessed to have had Nancy in our lives. CHP President John Hogan, who worked with Vesem for more than 20 years, said, when people spent any time with Nancy, they became friends very quickly. She had a very outgoing personality. She had an optimism about her. She really had a light within her. She was always looking for the best she could for the community at large, said Assistant Medical Director Dr. Moritz Daler, who worked with Vesem for 15 years. Her vision of taking care of the quality of the doctors we engage and the affordability of keeping the health plan in reach of state workers and people who have access to it was her mission. According to her profile on Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare's website, she graduated with her medical degree from St. Louis University School of Medicine in 1983 and began her internship at the University of Utah Medical Center in 1984 and a residency in 1985 and a year later at Loyola University Medical Center. An adoring mother to her three daughters, Vesem was remembered as a centered, optimistic, caring person who enjoyed her yoga practice at a, as a private joy. Taylor last saw Vesem as she headed out to the Friday evening class with a smile on her face. She worked endlessly with CHP, but her getaway, he said, was going to yoga multiple times a week. When he entered the yoga class, Byerly positioned himself behind 21-year-old Mara Binkley. She had plans for a movie night with friends after the class and was going to bake a dessert for the get-together. Mara Binkley was a fourth-generation legacy student at FSU, where she majored in German and English. Binkley grew up in a suburb of Atlanta and graduated from Dunwoody High School in May 2015. As a high school student, she wrote several stories that were published in a community newspaper. Her Facebook profile showed many photos from her senior year of high school. Mara Binkley started at FSU in August 2015. She earned an academic scholarship to FSU and was in the running for a Fulbright scholarship. She was a member of the Delta 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 sorority and was the vice president of chapter development. In 2017, she participated in a Tri-Delt-sponsored dodgeball tournament to benefit St. Jude's fight against cancer. She also volunteered as a literacy teacher and was considering graduate school and a career in public service or international affairs in the future. During the spring semester, Mara spent five months at the University of Wuppertal in Germany. She hoped to get a job with Teach for America after graduating in May 2019 and dreamed of returning to Germany to teach. In her room, Mara kept a copy of a mural painted on a section of the Berlin Wall containing the quote, Many small people who in many small places do many small things can alter the face of the world. She just wanted to help other people, her dad, Jeff Binkley, said. That's all she ever wanted to do. Jeff Binkley said Mara was fed up with gun violence and on a personal mission 
to prevent more people from being victimized. I remember her calling and saying, Dad, I'm going down to the Capitol to be there with the students for Parkland, the parents, and the other people, and to whatever. She had a mature outlook about change, he said. And she became a victim. It's a cruel irony. A cruel irony, he said. Mara sent her parents videos from the rally at the state capitol and talked to them about what one person might do to make a difference. These high schoolers had their classmates and friends shot and killed a week ago, and they're so resilient, she texted a friend. They're up here fighting for their rights. It's amazing. Weeks later, the Binkleys encountered the parents of Parkland victims in the lobby of a downtown Tallahassee hotel. We went back over and sat down at the bar and just talked about, my goodness, here are these parents, here are these students. What can we do? There are no good answers, Jeff Binkley said. Just a matter of months later, it's us, he said. The degrees of separation are gone. As a leader in our chapter, Mora embodied the Tri-Delta woman, brave, bold, and kind, said Tri-Delta's international president, Kimberly Sullivan, in a statement. Our hearts are with her family, our sisters, and the FSU community during this difficult time. We are grateful for the outpouring of support as we honor Mara's life, and we respectfully ask for privacy as we grieve this tragic loss. FSU President John Thrasher posted this statement to Facebook. There are no words to express the shock and grief we feel after learning of the deaths of Mara Binkley and Dr. Nancy Van Vessem. To lose one of our students and one of our faculty members in this tragic and violent way is just devastating to the Florida State University family. We feel this loss profoundly, and we send our deepest sympathies to Mara's and Nancy's loved ones while we pray for the recovery of those who were injured. The morning after the shooting, yoga practitioners from all over the city rallied and unrolled their yoga mats on Adams Street in downtown Tallahassee to raise money for Hurricane Michael recovery. However, the event, called Yoga for a Cause, took on a new meaning in the wake of the shootings. Mackenzie Burley Lobeck, who organized the event, called the instructor scheduled to teach the class, who worked at Tallahassee Hot Yoga, to cancel. She said, no, we need yoga now more than ever, Lobeck said. People shared hugs and tears as they gathered for the hour-long yoga session. Florida State University held a vigil for the victims of the shooting on November 4th. Hundreds gathered under overcast skies at the unconquered statue on campus to remember Maura Binkley and Dr. Nancy Van Vessem. President John Thrasher offered his condolences to the families of both women. He emphasized his commitment to keeping guns off the campus and was adamant that society had to find a way to balance the rights of gun owners with citizens' right to be safe. Just one week earlier, Thrasher had spoken at a vigil for the 11 victims killed in the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. It's hard to understand why such caring, kind, and compassionate people would be taken from us, Thrasher said. Mara and Nancy were shining lights to all who knew them. Two vigils were held on Sunday, November 5th, with help from the Delta 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 sorority on campus. 
Joshua Quick was hailed as a hero for his actions during the shooting. President Thrasher and the FSU board promised at least $30,000 to cover Quick's law school expenses. We're going to start an effort to take care of the rest of his time at our law school, said Thrasher, who expressed hope the board would give more. I want you to know how much gratitude we have for what you did. Following a three-month investigation, authorities said that Byerly was a disturbed individual with a hatred towards women. The investigation found that Byerly had planned the attack in advance and planned to die once it was over. Authorities discovered Byerly's history of looking for yoga-related pornography. They uncovered his videos, songs, and writings with themes of rape, torture, and murder. Although there was no specific target at the yoga studio on the night of November 2nd, said Tallahassee Police Chief Michael DeLeo, Scott Byerly's lifetime of misogynistic attitudes caused him to attack a familiar community where he had been arrested several times for his previous violent action towards women. On what would have been her 22nd birthday, February 22, 2019, Maura Binkley's family announced the founding of a new research foundation in her memory. I can hear Maura's voice, and that is a voice for change, said Jeff Binkley. FSU and the Binkley family created the Mora's Voice Research Fund, a nonprofit dedicated to understanding the causes of gun violence and funding research to inform policy and other responses to reduce gun deaths. The foundation would also tackle issues around violence against women. Mora's Voice officially launched on March 4th 2019, and is based at FSU's School of Social Work. Almost one year after the shooting on October 23, 2019, Capital Health Plan held a ribbon-cutting ceremony to celebrate the opening of its new Metropolitan Health Center. The 72,000-square-foot facility also houses the Nancy Van Vessem Center for Healthy Aging named for Dr. Nancy Van Vessem, killed in the November 2018 shooting. The center will have a unique focus based on the needs of the area's growing 65 and over population. President and CEO John Hogan said the new space was an appropriate way to honor Dr. Van Vessem's memory. But at the end of the day, Nancy always had a bright smile on her face, and I think that everybody's interaction was more positive, said Hogan. You don't ever forget that. So that's something that's going to be remembered, I think, by everybody that worked closely with her as a professional. The FBI recorded just one hate crime in Tallahassee in 2018, and it wasn't the hot yoga shooting. That's because Florida law says that hate crimes can be motivated by bias against race, color, ancestry, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, national origin, homeless status, or advanced age. It doesn't mention gender, gender identity, or disability. In a March 2019 Pensacola News Journal op-ed, Jeff Binkley called for the expansion of Florida's hate crime law to include gender, gender identity, and disability. Binkley wrote, So I ask, in Florida, are hate-motivated crimes committed for no other reason than the gender or identification of the individual any less related to hate than those committed because of religious or other identity? In November 2019,
House and Senate bills were filed in the state legislature to include gender, gender identity, and disability in hate crimes law. Representatives Joseph Geller and Richard Stark, both South Florida Democrats, filed HB 655, which is co-sponsored by Representative Jackie Toledo, a Tampa Republican. Democrat Kevin Rader of Boca Raton filed SB 940 in the Senate. The Hate Crime Files podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.